everybody, it's David Creek. I want to thank you for listening to the Westchester Church Podcast. We're coming to you from the Philadelphia area. And you can check out our website at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. There's, there's a lot to be happy about this morning. The um, air is cooler outside. Leafs are turning colors. The Eagles are 5-0. and oh. And yet more than anything, though, we've got Jesus. Our name is written in heaven this morning. It just puts a smile on my face. Well, we're now midway through our journey of the seven letters written to the churches of Revelation. Last week, we heard Jesus' letter that he wrote to the church of Pergamon, which was the most prominent of these seven cities, something like a combination of New York City and Washington, D.C. And this morning, the letter that we will hear, or hear rather, Jesus sent to the church of Thyatira, which was the opposite. It was one of the smaller of these cities, most insignificant. And yet, ironically, it receives the largest of these letters. Thyatira was the hub where where copper, bronze, and fine brass were mass-produced. It was the Pittsburgh of Asia Minor. This was just a gritty, hard-working, blue-collar city. And so we could very well imagine walking the streets of ancient Thyatira on a balmy summer day. As we're walking up and down the streets, we can see coppersmiths loudly and busily and arduously at work. And then we can imagine turning a corner, and we see this enormous statue made of burnished bronze. And it's at the part of the day where the sun is bouncing off of its face and its eyes appear to be glowing. And it's almost blinding to us as we look up at it. It's such a noteworthy object that we ask a passerby, you know, what what is this a statue of? And they say, this, you know, haven't you heard? This this is Apollo, the god of Thyatira, a.k.a. the sun god, a.k.a. Zeus's son. As coins and Thyatira had depicted them, you would see a picture of Apollo, and underneath would be etched the words, the Son of God. Apollo was the Son of God in Thyatira. And so we begin Jesus' letter to the church of Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18. And notice the way that Jesus identifies himself to them. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira writes, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Notice how Jesus is once again speaking their language by referencing something that is extremely city-specific. And in a way, especially, that announces his preeminence over whatever darkness that place was clinging to. 
He begins his letter by saying that this is the real life Son of God speaking. Apollo is not the one who is in control. Apollo is, you know, he's a carving. He's a block of wood. He's a hunk of metal. And yet I am the one who is in control. So hope in me, he's saying. And I mean, as he begins addressing this house church in Thyatira, we see from the very start that in so many ways, this is the church that Jesus yearned to see in Ephesus. We remember his very first letter went to the church at Ephesus. And we remember how, in, how despite all of their busyness and patience and resilience and faithfulness, Jesus reveals to them, Jesus unveils the reality that actually they were a fallen church. Because they were doing all of those incredible things without a heart of love. And yet that is not at all the case at the church in Thyatira. Jesus says in verse 19, I know your works, your love and faith and service and your patient endurance, and that your latter works far exceed the first. Jesus says, I know your works. These are gritty blue-collared, hard workers for Jesus Christ. He says, I know your love. They are a house with love in it. He commends them for, for having a strong faith. They believe in the resurrection. They have confidence in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I know what your service is. They are active in helping those who are poor. They're showing kindness to those who are outsiders. They're entertaining angels. He says, I know that you have a patient endurance. How, how when things get tough in your life as Christians, you don't stay down long. But like the Apostle Paul, you get right back on your feet and you go back into the same city that just kicked the snot out of you. You just keep on showing up for God every single day with your lunch pail in hand. And then Jesus commends and he says, and I know that your most recent works far exceed what you once were in the beginning. And so he's, he's saying that your loving service began good, but it's gone to a whole new level now. And I mean, in light of what was said to the church at Ephesus, we would think, I mean, out of all of the churches that we read about in New Testament scripture, this has to be the model church, right? I mean, look at all of the progress that they're making. The Church of Thyatira is a busy, resilient church with love in it. And throughout all of these years and, and all this while, they have remained a busy, resilient church with love in it. We look at this church and what Jesus says, and it's just like they just keep soaring higher and higher and higher. And I think that's a powerful message for the church that is in Westchester. I mean, this is a church that has love. This is a gritty church of faith and perseverance and a commitment to be the hands of Jesus in the lives of those who are, are hurting and who are poor. And yet I love this church in Thyatira because they are a living reminder to us that that as good as what we have done for, for our king in the past, 
What they're saying to us is that you can learn to love even more. Our opportunities can increase even more than they've already been. Our compassion and our kindness and our sense of urgency in the lives of other people, that can burn even more fervently in our souls. And so Jesus commends his church that that I know your works. I see all of this love and faith and resilience. And yet, once again, Jesus notices a malignant spiritual cancer in this church too. Even though they had so much going for them in so many countless ways, Jesus reveals a giant cancer that is infesting this church. And so he says in verse 20, but I I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, we don't know exactly who this is, but there was someone in this church, some say that it may have been um, a spouse of a teacher or an elder perhaps, maybe just, just an ordinary woman in the church. And yet she was taking it upon herself to speak on behalf of God. Now I am, I've, I've learned firsthand in my almost 20 years as a minister, if you take it upon yourself to speak for God, be careful with that. <laughs> it will give you many sleepless nights, believe me. So she was saying that I am speaking on behalf of God, but, but what she was showing this church, it was unquestionably deadly and destructive to their souls. Now, I want to tell you something else about the city of Thyatira. In addition to their bronze and copper work, Thyatira was just as known for their trade guilds. Now, a trade guild in this time was something like a combination of work unions now and and, um, social clubs. Trade guilds was was how you would flourish as a professional. It would put coppersmiths in network with with all the other coppersmiths, winemakers with all the other winemakers, carpenters with all the other carpenters, you get it. But it had this particular spin on it. Most trade guild meetings would be held in a banquet hall that was adjacent to a pagan temple. And so the way that most guild meetings would commence would would a person would invoke the name of the deity of that particular guild. Food would be sacrificed to that idol. And before anybody knew it, what would then unfold, and it would always escalate into a wild drunken orgy. And so, I mean, for Christians living in Thyatira, this this was the pressure that was placed upon their shoulders. Is that they were living in a climate and in a time where their society dictated, if you want to flourish in your business and at your trade, go to the guild meetings. Don't miss one of them. Just keep on coming to these guild meetings 
And if you want to risk losing it all, then by all means, don't go to the guild meetings. And so a lot of Christians in this church in Thyatira were saying no to these guild meetings. Until one day, when a person comes into the church, a person evidently commanding great respect, who began saying something along the lines of, what are you guys talking about? You don't have to put your your life's and your career in jeopardy anymore. You don't have to let your businesses go down the drain. Because let me tell you, God's grace is so wonderful that you don't have to choose one or the other. So she was saying to them that you can actually have both. You can worship Jesus on Sunday morning in the gathering of the church, and you can worship Apollo at the guild meeting on Monday night and Wednesday, and Friday, and Saturday. She was leading these believers of Jesus back into the idolatry and sexual sin that they left in order to follow Jesus. And I mean, just imagine being very young in your faith. Remember at that point in our lives where a lot of this made no sense to us. We were brand new to it. Now imagine someone in this church who, up until just five months ago, they, they never heard of, of Jesus. All they ever knew was worshiping Apollo and going to trade guilds and, and everything that would happen at those banquets. You've left all of that to follow Jesus, but then a person who, who, who has a lot of knowledge stands up in the church and says, hey, you can go right back to those things. It literally would have been like going up to a person who just got released from rehab, waving a bottle of whiskey right in their face, or flashing a bag of cocaine and saying, come on, let's get smashed. Such a temptation would have been overwhelming for a lot of newcomers especially. And so Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel. This is going on in the church, but you are allowing it to happen. You're letting it go unchecked, and it's getting worse by the minute. Now, the name of this woman is not literally Jezebel. Remember, Revelation is extremely symbolic. Her name is not literally Jezebel, but but she reminds Jesus of Jezebel. And we all remember Queen Jezebel from the Old Testament, don't we? Jezebel was the wife of Ahab, who was one of the most evil kings that Israel ever had. And yet Queen Jezebel was one of the most evil people who ever lived. She was the one who enticed Ahab to to worship Baal and Asherah. And then once she enticed him to worship those gods, she enticed Ahab to fill Israel with, with one shrine after another to all of these gods. And so you see that Ahab may have been the king seated on the throne. And yet Jezebel was really the one who was pulling the strings behind the scenes. As Queen Jezebel put innocent people to death, she deceived people. She massacred God's prophets who dared stand up to her. 
Jezebel was so evil and so much to be feared that, that even Elijah, the great prophet of God, was shaking in his boots and despairing of life the millisecond that she went after him. Now, whoever this person is at the church in Thyatira, who Jesus nicknames Jezebel, she is leaving a wake of spiritual destruction in her path. And yet as abhorrent as her influence had been, did you notice the shining gem of this letter? Where in verse 21, Jesus says something truly remarkable. Something truly beautiful. Where he says that I gave her time to repent. I mean, think about that. Jesus is saying, I gave her time to repent. Even for Jezebel, God's loving, patient compassion was overflowing. Even for a false prophet who was deceiving his church, even for a person who had infiltrated inside and began inflicting damage within his bride and his church, come some of the most haunting words of the love and the mercy of God ever spoken, where Jesus says, I gave her time to repent. And I think of the people who have had a patience with me. My mother and father taught me how to walk. They taught me how to talk. They taught me how to ride a bicycle and drive a car. They taught me to love Jesus and to respect the word of God. They taught me, for as long as I was under their, their roof, to aspire to be the kind of person who breathes life and, and, and joy in a room rather than sucking all of the life out of it. My parents have been so patient with me. Even when I was a snot-nosed punk, and even when I got suspended twice in one school year, and the vice principal was a deacon at a sister congregation, let me tell you, I'm still grounded from that. My dad still won't let me leave my house to this day. <laughs> oh, man. I was 23 years old when Amanda married me. And that girl picked right up where my mom and dad left off. She said, I'll take it from here, guys. Don't worry. And that poor girl. You know, Amanda's the one who taught me how to grow up and to be a man and to be mature. She taught me to stop being selfish and to be a servant. And she's, she's still teaching me this as we speak. She's been so patient with me. Even when 12 years ago at a church, I was working 100-hour weeks and she never got to see me. Even when for breakfast I ate five scoops of ice cream and a giant box of pie. Last week she sent me to Trader Joe's. We were going to make soup one night. So she sent me over there with, with um, a list of, of what to you know, buy for, for ingredients. And for the life of me, I couldn't find onion salt. Skewered the whole entire store and I couldn't find that and about half a dozen other things. But... Brought it home, and we still made the soup. And in so many ways, that woman has been so patient with me. 
I think anybody else would have left me a long time ago, and they would have been right to have done so. That girl just keeps loving me and being patient with me. And I think about the patience that I have received from this church. Even though it's, it's apparent to everybody, I'm not Jesus. I'm not Paul. I'm not even Simon or Bartholomew. Even though as a minister, it's understandable, not everybody's going to like your style. Even though I have so much still to learn, so much growing up in Jesus yet to undergo, and even though I still make mistakes just like anybody else, this church is so patient with me. Even though I get up here and I try to sing and I sound like a dog howling outside of a KFC, and I try to preach and it's, you know, it's, it's not Jesus. And you just keep on encouraging me. And even though I am so imperfect, you're, you understand, it seems like, that you, you know, as long as we have open hearts and open minds to the word of God, that's, that's what truly matters here. And I love that about this church. And yet as great as the kindness and, and the loving patience is that, that we have received in all kinds of ways, though, it pales in comparison to the lavish, extravagant kindness that we receive and that God pours upon us. I mean, God was so patient with the Israelites, wasn't he? Even after all of that complaining and grumbling and sinning and idolatry, he was so patient with, with his 12 disciples, even though they were so worldly and immature and angry. And despite all of our imperfections and frailties, God is so patient with you, and he's so patient with me. In fact, I think I could say it like this. At one time in our lives, maybe many times in our lives, we were Jezebel. Every single one of us comes into the church having once been Jezebel. It really doesn't matter what we did to have nailed Jesus to the cross. I think many times in our lives it could have been said of us by God that I, you know, I gave him time to repent. I gave him all of this time to trust in me at last. I gave her time to choose my ways and to just let go and, and to trust in me. It could have been said that I gave him time to mourn all of this darkness that he's reveling in and to step into my light with a heart full of faith. And that's because our God is a God of loving, patient kindness. As King David writes in Psalm 103, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in loving kindness. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions away from us. God looks at even a Jezebel in his church and says, no, I, I, I have given her time to repent. 
And yet, sadly, Jezebel has made her decision. Yes, even though it's true that God is a God of mercy and love and patience, nevertheless, to all of those whose hearts of stone defiantly remain hearts of stone, there comes a time where God is going to back off a little bit. God is not going to tolerate it. He's not going to force himself or his heaven upon anybody. And so come the tragic words in the letter to the church of Thyatira, that I have given her time to repent, but she was not willing to repent of her sexual immorality. You see, this is the crossroads that Israel found themselves in incessantly. Where they just keep on choosing the the Baals and the Astros and the Chemoshes and the Moloch's of the ancient world. And for the 993rd time, now God is saying, are you sure? Yeah. Well, okay, are you sure that you're 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 sure? Yeah. And God, many times in the Old Testament, reaches a point where he's like, okay. Okay, well, buckle up. Because you're about to experience what happens when you stop living for the God of heaven. And you put your hope in blocks of wood that you made with your own hand. And in earthly kings who reign with human wisdom. And you live for the things here below rather than the things above. And you live in the flesh rather than in the spirit. And I mean, Jesus' commentary and his response to Jezebel and, and her converts in this church, it is absolutely, well, it's scathing. Where in verse 22, Jesus says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. And again, we see his loving kindness, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. Yeah, that's in the Bible. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches both mind and heart. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. I got smoke coming off of the page. I was, wow. Well, again, we need to remember that when we read Revelation, Jesus is using extremely symbolic language. Jesus is not saying that he's literally going to murder anybody's children. I hope nobody leaves today with that misunderstanding. Jesus isn't saying that. But here is what is going on here. Now, Jezebel's lovers are people in this church who have been enticed to practice sexual sin and to once again begin worshiping other gods, probably Apollo. Jezebel's children that he mentions, these are those who, like Jezebel, have completely abandoned the ways of Jesus. They may be showing up on Sunday, but they're really not living the Christian life anymore. Now, we don't know precisely what the sickness or the tribulations, how these are going to manifest themselves if it it gets that far. 
Rather, I believe what Jesus is saying to his people is this. If you walk in the light, you will experience everything that my light has to offer to you and to bring into your life. But if you walk once again in the darkness and you practice the deeds of darkness, well, you're going to experience everything that the darkness has to bring into your life. I think what Jesus is is saying to us this morning is that we cannot make Jesus king and Jezebel queen. The way of Jesus leads to peace and protection and promised land. The way of Jezebel leads to death and to destruction and to a living hell of a life of, of gnashing of teeth even upon the earth. And we would do well by reminding ourselves, how did Queen Jezebel's life come to an end? You know, in 2 Kings chapter 9, we read about this. It needs a parental advisory sticker on it because it's so graphic. Where despite all of the havoc that she wreaked upon Israel and upon the earth, Jezebel's demise was indescribably gruesome where she was thrown through a window of the palace, trampled by horses, and devoured by by a group of dogs so severely that she was unrecognizable. And it was said of her corpse, the very last thing said about her is that may her corpse be as, as the dung in the field. That's how Jezebel went out. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not how I want my life to end in this world. I think Jesus is saying that if you follow the way of Jezebel, that is what is in your future. And yet if you follow me, joy and peace and ecstasy are unimaginable. And yet as we remember Jezebel's lifeless body on the field that day, what a timeless testimony to us all that evil may endure for a time, for a generation, for a regime. But King Jesus and his church will always win and triumph in the end. In fact, if you have been wanting to understand the book of Revelation, you don't have to master every little abstract nuance and and break out all the charts. You just have to understand that if Jesus is your king, and if Jesus is still your king when you die, We win. I've got it written on the front sheet of of Revelation in my Bible. We win. Because that is the message of the book of Revelation to all who hold fast to Jesus. And then lastly this morning, to all the rest of those in this church who have not fallen for her deception. Jesus says these words of comfort in verse 24. Where he says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, those who do not hold to this teaching, those of you who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. In other words, you've got enough on your plate already. And yet he does say in verse 25, only hold fast what you have until I come. For the one who conquers and who keeps my my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. 
And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. Now here Jesus is using language from Psalm 2 about how God has authority over all the nations. But but notice here though, now in this Christian age, now that authority is actually shared, Jesus is saying. And here's what authority over the nations and the rod of iron means. It means that all of us who hope in Jesus Christ, we, we have left our former lives far behind. We've been picking up our crosses, dying to our own selfish desires, and we've been aspiring to live for Jesus Christ. We've been washed of the blood of the Lamb. He's added us to his kingdom, seated us at his table in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our king is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Our kingdom is God's eternal kingdom. And so what this means, my friend is that if Jesus is victorious throughout all of the ages, then what that means is we are going to be victorious with Jesus throughout all of the ages. And then at last he says in verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. That's a very mysterious statement, isn't it? We know that the morning star is is the star that is still brightly shining in the sky, even after the sun has come up. And the other stars have faded. But again, Jesus isn't literally saying, I'm going to pull a star out of the sky and I'm going to hand it to you. Or rather, Jesus says in Revelation 22, 16, he says that I am the bright and the morning star. As we sing this morning, he's the lily of the valley, the bright and morning star. And you know, my favorite song of all time is called I Like the Sunrise. I don't know if um, anybody's heard it. It's an old jazz standard. It was composed by Ellington, and it was sung by Sinatra at one point. And the words go at the beginning, I like the sunrise because it brings a new day. I like a new day. It brings new hope, they say. I like the sunrise blazing in the new sky. Nighttime is weary. Oh, and so am I. And then it goes, every night I wish upon a star that my brand new bright tomorrow isn't very far. When that heavy blue curtain of night is raised down high out of sight. And then it ends by saying, I like the sunrise so heavenly to see. I like the sunrise. I hope it lights for me. And to all who hold fast to him, Jesus is that bright and morning star that we wish upon and that we we, um, trust in and that we hope for. Jesus arose from the dead at sunrise. The steadfast love of the Lord is new. His mercies are new every morning for us. And every day, Jesus himself is that promise to all who have endured the darkest parts of the night. And now, as his light bears, what he's saying to us is this. 
is that now with, with my light shining in your lives and in your conduct, now together we will give hope to all of the captives of darkness that you once left to follow me. And so now you and I ourselves get to be that shout of joy that comes in the morning after all of the unbelieving world has wept. Well, for Jezebel, it was said of her, I have given her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And yet, what about us this morning? Is there anything that Jesus is saying right now, I am giving them time to let go of this. I'm giving them time to stop clinging to that and just hold my hand once again. I don't know about you, but I I want it said of me that I gave him time to repent and he did. Or will we be just another Jezebel? Where I gave them all this time, but it didn't make any difference. They made their minds up. It reminds me so much of a scene in one of the Indiana Jones movies where there's, there's a woman who's about to fall off a cliff, but she, with one hand, is being held by Indiana Jones. With her other hand, she looks down and sees the Holy Grail right there. She thinks that she can both grab the grail and be saved, but no, she, she reaches for it and she plummets to her death. And as she falls, Indiana falls, but his father grabs his hand, latches onto it, he's like, get up here, come on, pull yourself up. But Indiana Jones looks back and he sees the Holy Grail, he gets three fingers on it, he's almost got it, but his grasp in his father's hand is slipping and he's, he's about to plummet now to his death. When all of a sudden what Indiana hears calling out to him, ascending from up above out of the darkness, is the voice of his father saying, Indiana, Indiana, let it go. And he wisely lets go of that and his father lifts him back up and they're saved. And you know, that is exactly what we need to do this morning. What we need to do all the days of our life is to let go of Jezebel and to hold fast to Jesus.